Well, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday worship service, and thank you for joining us. I find in these trying days that we are going through with unprecedented circumstances continuing to uh, change our lives in almost every way, one of the things that it can be easy to do is begin forgetting, and forgetting the most important things of what God has promised us and what he, what he does for us on a daily basis. There's uh, an old story told about a city slicker who was visiting relatives on a farm, and the farmer gives a whistle, and his dog just immediately is so well-trained that he begins herding the cattle into the corral. Then the dog goes so far as to nose the corral gate shut and then reach up and latch it closed with its paw. While the city slicker was so impressed by this, he says, Wow, what a dog. What's its name? And now the old farmer was quite forgetful, and he scratches his head for a minute and then says, Well, what's that flower that's red with thorns on the stem? The city slicker thought for a minute or for a second and then said, uh, A rose? Yes, that's it, the old farmer replied. Then, turning to his wife, he said, Hey, Rose, what's the name of that dog? Now, I hope that you have a better memory than that farmer. But the fact is that all of us forget things sometimes. And one of the most important things is the incredible truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been rehearsing and unpacking as we've been going through Romans over these past weeks and so this morning, we're going to be doing the same as we dive back in to the book of Romans in chapter 5. I want to remind you uh, again that uh, for the offering, uh, you can still give of your tithe and offering to the ministry of the church. Uh, you can do that by putting a check in the mail, making it out to Clarny Mennonite Church, and mailing that to Box 969, Clarny Manitoba, R0K1G0. Or uh, you can bring it by the church and leave it in the church offering box located in the foyer. Now, uh, I would invite you to bow with me for, for opening prayer, and at the conclusion of the prayer, I will uh, pray the Lord's Prayer, and I would invite you, wherever you are, to just pause, take that moment, and pray along with me. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we do confess that we are so often forgetful people, it's why your word is filled with reminders and statements to remember. Remember the Lord your God. Remember what he has done for you. Remember, and to, to even build memorials to continually remind us of what you have done for us. One of those important reminders in our life today is the cross. And every time we see the cross, we remember, Lord Jesus, what you did for us on that cross. What you did by pouring out your blood on Calvary's hill so that we could be set free, our sins forgiven and enter into relationship with the Father forever. And so we thank you, and we remember. And so we thank you that this gospel message that we've been diving into in Romans continues week by week to remind us of what's, in, what's most important and to keep us focused on this central truth that changes our lives and overcomes even the trying circumstances that our world is facing uh, even now. And so we thank you that this, this single truth of the gospel, that Jesus lives because you live through faith in you, we also shall live. This changes everything, and, and it changes our perspective towards what we're enduring at the moment. And so we thank you, Lord, that this is a, a sure and living hope that we have in our hearts, even right now. May it be real. And so, Father, uh, as we consider the circumstances in our world, as we continue to, to go through this pandemic, Lord, we continue to pray for those uh, directly affected by COVID. 
For those who, who need a healing touch, Lord, we pray that you would lay a hand upon them. For those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, be near to them and comfort them. We also pray for those, Lord, indirectly affected, whether uh, uh, emotionally, whether financially, in a, in a whole host of different ways, we pray, Lord, would you be near, would you provide? And we thank you that your promise is true, that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so we pray that you would continue to show your faithfulness to us, Lord, as we go through these times day by day. Lord, we pray for our healthcare workers, for those who are, who are providing care for people for a, a wide variety of different things in, in different circumstances. We pray that you be near to them and also help them uh, to endure and to have strength to continue to move forward day by day. We pray for our schools, for our teachers, and, and all of those, Lord, who are, who are still providing uh, instruction to our children and to their students. Be with them, uh, protect them, and uh, may the schools be be a good and safe place for children to, to come and to continue to learn. We pray for our government officials, Lord. Uh, we, we pray that you would continue to guide them, uh, help them to seek you and your wisdom in the many difficult decisions that they have to make in these times. Lord, ultimately, uh, we of course just pray that this would all come to an end, that life could return to normal, but we know that in and all in and through all of these things, you are still at work, that you are in control, and so we, we simply pray, thy will be done in all of these things. And so now, I invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I now invite you to take your Bibles, and uh, if you don't have them, please take a moment to go grab them as we read the scripture together. Just a reminder for, for those of you who have children at home, one of the great things to add to your Sunday morning worship service is, is do a couple of sword drills. Practice getting into the Word and learning how to use this sword of the Spirit. Uh, it's a fun thing that we do with our boys uh, on a regular basis, and we've been adding it to our Sunday morning uh, family worship services, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's, it's pretty neat to see Declan. He's so motivated to be faster than the pastor, and he, he wants to be, uh, ha have those bragging rights if he could ever beat me. So, uh, so it's a lot of fun, and it's a great way to get our, get our kids into the Word and learn how to, how to use it for themselves. also remind you that... Uh, we have another video attached uh, beside this one uh, of Tim and Brittany who are going to be uh, uploading some praise and worship songs that you can also worship along with in addition to the sermon this morning. So please, if you haven't already, check that out and uh, have a time of singing and worship uh, at home as well. So now uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and follow along with me. We are in Romans chapter 5 and there I will be reading verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, 
how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as, as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brought life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far the reading of God's word. Would you bow with me once more as we now hear from the message? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we have just heard. It is rich, it is deep, and there is a lot to unpack. And so, Holy Spirit, I simply ask that you would open our minds to understand this intricate passage of your word, the depth and the beauty that is there, and the very real applications and implications for our lives. And so, Father, open this word to our hearts. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared once before the true story taken from the 14th century about a man named Reginald III, the Duke of Gelders. This is located in the modern-day country of Belgium. Now, Reginald III was infamous for his immense appetite and for throwing lavish feasts, and so, not surprisingly, the result was that he became grossly obese. So much so that behind his back, he was commonly referred to by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which literally means fat. So Reginald had a younger brother named Edward. And following their father's death, who was the king, in 1343, a quarrel of succession broke out between the two brothers as to who should ascend to the throne in their father's place. The quarrel eventually escalated into armed conflict, where the forces of Edward finally defeated the forces of Reginald in 1361. However, once victorious, Edward chose mercifully not to kill his brother Reginald. Instead, he built a room around Reginald in the Newark Castle, and he promised his brother that he could regain his former title of Duke and all of his property just as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult at all for the vast majority of people, as the door, as the room had a door of near normal size, which was not locked or barred. In fact, just to taunt him, the door was often left standing wide open. But even still, Reginald could not escape. The problem, you see, was Reginald's immense size. He simply could not fit through that open door. So you see, in order to regain his freedom, he would need to lose a significant amount of weight. Now, Edward knew well 
his brother's gluttonous appetite. He was infamous for it. And so each day, Edward would have sent into his brother's cell an abundant variety of delicious foods. And so there, Reginald, instead of dieting his way out of prison and thereby regaining his freedom, he indulged and indulged and grew larger and larger still. When Duke Edward was accused of being unusually cruel towards his brother, he had a ready response. My brother, he said, is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. You see, Reginald stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. By then, he was so large that a portion of the walls had to actually be cut away in order to release him. However, Reginald only held the throne for a few short months thereafter, as by then his health was so ruined that he died within the year of his release. Truly, Reginald III was a prisoner of his own appetite. Now, just as Reginald remained a prisoner due to his own immense appetite for food, here in the book of Romans, we have been learning that all of mankind has been enslaved and imprisoned by its own appetite for sin. And just as Reginald's imprisonment was thrust upon him by the actions of his relative, so too our imprisonment, our enslavement to sin, was forced upon us by the actions of our relative, a man named Adam. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 to 21, if you have not already opened there. In this section, the Apostle Paul proceeds to compare and contrast the work of that one man, Adam, to whom we owe our imprisonment to sin and death, and he compares and contrasts that with the one man, Jesus Christ, to whom we owe our freedom from sin and the gift of eternal life. So each of the one men, both Adam and Christ, committed one act that had repercussions that impacted all people. Paul summarizes this same theme elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, where there he wrote, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so today we are going to follow along with Paul and seek to compare and contrast between the two men, the two acts, the two results, and then imply those implications to our own lives. And so we focus first on that distant relative of ours, Adam. The first thing we learn from Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 is this. The one man, Adam, is our federal head. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. So how can it be that just one sin by just one man, many thousands of years ago, has had such a devastating impact on all people ever since? How can that be? Well, the reason is that the one act of the one man, Adam, it affected all people is because of what is known as the theology of federal headship. Federal headship. The word federal comes from the Latin word 
foetus, foetus, which means covenant. Thus, a federal head is a person who, through a covenant relationship, represents or stands in for someone else. A practical example of this principle at work today is our federal government. It's why they've actually chosen the word federal to describe the the central government of a nation, the federal government. Because the federal government represents or stands in for the citizens of the nation. And so here in Canada, our federal government stands in for us on the decisions that affect us as a whole. And so when our federal government makes a decision, whether we agree with said decision or not, as our federal head, it directly impacts all of us just the same. So when they make a decision, it's as though we made a decision because it affects us directly, whether we agree with said decision or not. And in the same way, Adam, acting as the federal head of all of mankind, when he made his one decision way back in the Garden of Eden, his one decision impacted all of us. When he made his decision, it was as though we had made a decision. And so to look at that decision, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. There we read that after God had placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now let me ask you, How many people were on earth when that command was given? How many? Just one. The next verses reveal that Eve had not yet been created. Only Adam was there to receive this one direct command from the Lord, do not eat of this tree. Adam alone received God's command. Therefore, it was Adam alone as the federal head of all of mankind who bore the responsibility that the Lord's command be kept, not only by himself, but by his entire family yet to come. He was responsible. Now, while that might seem just a tad unfair, fairness really has nothing to do with it at all because it's simply how things work. It's how God designed it to work. We know this conclusively because of how the rest of the story unfolds. For even though it was Eve who actually sinned first after she was tempted by the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit, and then Adam sinned second by also eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when the Lord God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and and he calls out to them because they were hiding, because they realized now that they were naked, their eyes had been opened. Who did the Lord God address first? Who did he call to? It was not Eve, but Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, there we learn, the Lord God called to the man. And it was to the man that God asked, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from. So even though Eve was equally guilty, in fact, even sinned before chronologically than Adam, 
we clearly see that God placed the primary responsibility for the disobedience on Adam, not Eve. He placed it on Adam. Why? Because Adam was the federal head. And again here in Romans chapter 5, Paul does not even mention Eve. For even though God still held Eve accountable for her sin as well, she still had to bear the consequences of her actions. It is Adam as our federal head that God held ultimately responsible for the fall of mankind, and therefore in Adam all men die. And so now we come to the second point about Adam from this passage. The one man Adam's sin was imputed upon us all. The one man Adam's sin was imputed upon us all. Jumping ahead to verse 19, we read, Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Now, does that seem fair? That we should be made sinners because of Adam's disobedience way back when? I mean, it wasn't you or I who ate the fruit, so why should we be made sinners because of him? Well, the reason that all people were made sinners is because Adam's sin was imputed upon all mankind. So, what does impute mean? Well, the term impute is used both legally and financially and means to designate any action, word, or thing as credited to another person's account. So to impute is to credit an action, a word, or a thing to another person's account. So in this biblical sense, the penalty or consequence of Adam's sin, which was death both physically and spiritually, was imputed forward upon all of his descendants to come. Now, it does not mean that his descendants to come, us included, it does not mean that we are personally guilty of Adam's original sin. What it means is that his original sin was credited forward, imputed upon our account. And thus, the consequence of Adam's original fall is that all of his descendants are subsequently born fallen, which inevitably leads them to committing sins of their own for which they are accountable and are guilty, inevitably leading to physical and spiritual death. So though, yes, you and I, we did not commit the original sin, because Adam acting as our federal head did, The consequences of his one sin have been passed on, imputed to our account. I'll share with you a personal example that may help demonstrate this concept of imputing. And this is from my own family history. Now, I've been told that many decades ago, long before I was born, my grandpa Bueller, on my mother's side of the family, My grandpa Bueller was invited by his brother to join him in moving his family down to the South American country of Paraguay. Now, apparently, my grandpa had considered it at the time. But in the end, he decided that he would remain here in Canada. However, his brother did proceed to move him and his entire family to Paraguay. 
And as a result, his children and most of his descendants have lived in Paraguay ever since. Some years later, my grandpa Bueller ended up moving to the farm northeast of Clarny, which resulted in his children and most of his descendants, me included, living here in Manitoba ever since. So do you see how just two men making two different decisions can result in two very different outcomes that directly affect multiple generations of their descendants? Because even though I was not yet born, in effect, when my grandpa Bueller decided to remain in Canada, I remained in Canada. And when he decided to move to Killarney, I moved to Killarney. What he did, I did because I was in him. And just as I had no say whatsoever in my grandpa Bueller's decision, I likewise had no say whatsoever in my great-grandpa Adam's decision either. And yet both decisions have a direct and massive impact upon my life. So what is the massive consequence of Adam's decision upon all of our lives? Well, we've already said it. The one man Adam's sin causes all to die. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now, ever since the Garden of Eden, the wall of sin and death has imprisoned all of mankind. And just as with Reginald, the, the open door that's dangled in front of us is the law. Keep all of God's law, all of his commands, all of his ways, and maybe, just maybe, you can squeeze your way out of this imprisonment. But just as with Reginald, we cannot. We are entrapped by our own sinful natures and the lusts thereof. And yes, as he said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We simply cannot fit through that doorway. And therefore, Paul bluntly states, death came to all men because all sinned. All. Now here he adds one more point against the law of Moses having any ability to save us from the penalty of sin. For he points out that even in that time period, from Adam to Moses, prior to the law being given, meaning there were no direct laws to be broken, death still reigned supreme. And this demonstrates that though there were not yet the Ten Commandments to keep or to break, through death coming upon all men, God was still judging mankind for their sinful and rebellious hearts towards him even though there were no laws written in stone that were yet being broken. In verse, in verse 20, Paul says this to clarify the point. He says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. So in other words, adding the law only served to highlight all of the many trespasses that mankind was repeatedly making against God. 
It just highlighted and, and underlined the many ways that they were sinning against God on a repeated basis. And so all the law could do was highlight to them how guilty they were, how lost they were, and hopefully reveal to mankind that they were in desperate need of a savior, for they could not save themselves. And so death reigned supreme. And just as it reigned supreme then, it has continued to reign supreme until this very day. Now I've learned that one of the inevitable side effects of growing older is that the longer I live, and granted to some of you, you're going to look at me and say, you're not very old, you're a a young man still, and mostly that's true, but I've lived 38 years. And in those 38 years, I have learned that the more The longer I live, the more people I know whose fixed address is now at the Clarny Cemetery. In fact, one of my earliest childhood memories is as a three-year-old, watching as my infant twin brothers were buried in a tiny box at the foot of the same plot that already held my grandmother's body. So at the age of three, I was introduced to death. Since that time, all of my grandparents have since been laid to rest. And beyond my immediate family, there are dozens upon dozens more of our church family, people who once we shared these pews with, whose names we now only read upon their tombstones as we walk the rows. According to the American Society for Population Research, there are an estimated 60 million people who die globally every single year. 60 million people on average will die globally every single year. That's about two deaths for every one second that ticks off the clock. Two deaths for every one second. 60 million souls enter eternity every single year. Think about that. As we're sitting here and the the seconds tick by, souls are continuously entering eternity. The fact is that death is no stranger to any one of us. In fact, in my nearly 15 years as a pastor, it has been the rare exception for a calendar year to pass by without having someone from our immediate congregation pass away. More often, there are multiple funerals in a single year. And so we all know from personal experience that Paul's words are undeniably true. Death comes to all men. It is a certainty. And whether in early years or late, with the one caveat, unless Jesus returns first, death will come for us all. Now for many people, this undeniable fact is a very, very scary thought. And as the second half of Hebrews 2 verse 15 tells us, All their lives, mankind has been held in slavery by their fear of death. Held in slavery. Now, many people attempt to hide or push away this fear of death by not thinking about it, or even by joking around about it. Back in the 1970s, a folk rock musician by the name of Randy Newman was once interviewed by a major magazine in which Newman was asked about his views on religion, To which he replied, I think religion is a tremendously powerful force. How else is someone going to face the horror of everything ending? But the reporter, knowing that Newman was an avowed atheist, shot back, So how then do you face it? 
To which Newman replied, I don't. I just joke around. So whether your approach is to just avoid it, deny it, even accept it, or like Newman, just joke around about it, the fact remains that we all have to face our own death someday, and more importantly, face what comes after. And so just as Reginald III was imprisoned and condemned to die because of what he ate, so too it was because of what Adam ate that not only imprisoned and condemned himself, but also imprisoned and condemned all of his descendants to physical and spiritual death, you and I included. This is Adam's sad legacy. In Adam, all die. And it's been true ever since. And so to recap, the one man, Adam, he is our federal head, and therefore his sin was imputed upon us as his descendants, making us sinners as well, as well, making us incapable of doing anything but sin for which we are guilty, leaving us under the penalty of physical and spiritual death. This is the bad news. But now we shift our focus back to the good news of the gospel, to the other one man, the new man, Jesus Christ. The end of verse 14 says that Adam was a pattern or a type of the one to come. Adam was a pattern or a type of the one to come. Now, the one to come is, of course, referring to Jesus, meaning that Jesus would follow the same pattern of Adam only backwards to undo the damage and to reverse the curse. On YouTube, my sons sometimes watch videos of buildings being demolished where they do those implosion things. And so, you know, you've probably seen those videos where the building's standing there and then you hear the countdown and suddenly it just... like this, all the way down to the ground. But the videos my sons enjoy watching uh, and the part that always makes them laugh is that after the building goes... like this, then they reverse the footage and suddenly the building goes... and it's like it just got rebuilt magically right before your eyes. Well, this is in effect what the one man, Jesus, has done. Adam has caused everything to go, but now Jesus comes and he reverses it. And suddenly, everything, because of what he has done, is restored. So let's do the same with this text and reverse the footage. The one man, Jesus Christ, is our federal head. Remember, everything's in reverse. Adam is our federal head, and now the one man, Jesus Christ, is our federal head. Romans 5.15 But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So just as Adam was the first physical man and thereby our federal head, Jesus came into our world as the firstborn of a new type of spiritual man and thereby becomes our new federal head. Listen to Paul explain this in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 44 to 47. He writes, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Christ, 
The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. That's Adam. Physical. Dust of the earth. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man, the Lord Jesus. The second man from heaven. So, you see, just as we received physical life from Adam, but also along with him the curse of death, now from Christ, the new spiritual heavenly man, the firstborn, we receive spiritual life and the gift of eternal life. And so in this way, Jesus has now replaced Adam as our new federal head. And now secondly, the one man, Jesus' righteousness, was imputed upon us. So just as Adam's sin was imputed upon us, now Jesus' righteousness is imputed upon us. Verses 18 to 19. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, Jesus' one act of righteousness is referring principally, of course, to his death upon the cross. However, we should not forget that Jesus was also required to obey not just one single, simple, and clear command, as was Adam. But he was required through his entire earthly life, from from the cradle right through to finally his ascension into heaven, he was required to keep the entirety of the law, all of God's command, both in the letter of the law and in the spirit of the law. Now, I'm not sure that we can fully comprehend the magnitude of the difference between the two acts between Adam and Christ. Adam lived in the Garden of Eden. Remember, there was no sin in the world. There was absolutely nothing to even tempt him into sin. And remember, he did not have a fallen nature. He was innocent. We might call him naive, but that's only in relation to the fact that we know of evil. At this point, Adam didn't even know of evil. There was complete innocence in his mind, in his heart, and in his soul. Nothing to tempt him to sin until, of course, the serpent entered the garden, deceived Eve, and Adam, having only one single simple and clear command to obey, don't eat of this one tree, yet he failed. In stark contrast, Jesus had to live in a world that was riddled with sin and temptation. He was directly tempted by Satan in the wilderness and most certainly endured other temptations of Satan as well that are not recorded in the Gospels. Through all of it, he had to obey, as I said, the entirety of God's commands, and yet somehow he succeeded and obeyed God fully and completely in every single way without spot or blemish, completely righteous. However, we in Adam... We, on the other hand, are completely unrighteous in every single way. So how can Jesus' perfect righteousness be imputed to us who are perfectly unrighteous? How can he do it? Well, 
He simply offers it to us as a gift of grace, one that we can receive only through faith. This is how the new man asks us, do you want my righteousness imputed to you? Here's how. Receive the gift through faith. And this leads us to the third rebuilding, the third replay from the one man Adam to the one man Christ, that the one man Jesus' righteous act causes all who believe to live. In verse 18, Paul says, So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now here we need to be careful and be clear that Paul was not teaching universalism that all men would be saved by default. For clarity on this, we must go back to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul wrote, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. By faith, not by default. Remember, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Quite simply, Christ's righteous act will save all those and only those who believe by faith. Quite simply, God will not force heaven on anyone. Heaven is only for those who choose to be there. And the only way we can enter is according to God's terms. In his book entitled, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, Pastor Timothy Keller says that during his nearly two decades in New York City, he has had numerous opportunities to ask people, what is your biggest problem with Christianity? What troubles you the most about its beliefs? And one of the most frequent answers he has heard over the years can be summed up in one word, exclusivity. Exclusivity. The fact is that today we live in a culture that has no tolerance for a God that is intolerant of sin. They'd rather believe in a God that allows all religions and all beliefs to lead people equally to him. Wouldn't that be fair? In a video based on Max Licato's book, 316, Stories of Hope, Licato says, All roads lead to heaven. Well, that sentence makes good talk show fodder, but doesn't make sense. Can all approaches to God be correct? How can all religions lead to God when they are so different? We don't tolerate such logic in other matters. We don't pretend that all roads lead to London or all ships sail to Australia. All flights don't lead to Rome. Imagine your response to a travel agent who proclaims they do. You tell him you need a flight to Rome, Italy. So he looks on his screen and he offers, well, there's a flight to Sydney, Australia at 6 a.m. Does it go to Rome, you ask? No, but it offers great food and movies. But I need to go to Rome, you say. He says, well, let me suggest Southwest Airlines. <coughs> Southwest Airlines flies to Rome? No, but they win awards for on-time arrivals. Now you're getting frustrated, so you reiterate, I need one airline to carry me to one place Rome. The, the agent now appears offended. Sir, all flights go to Rome. Well, you know better. Different flights have different locations. 
It's simple logic. This is not thick-headed to come to this conclusion. One flight to one place. One flight, one destination. In the same way that every flight does not go to Rome, every pathway does not lead to God. Christianity, like many other religions, claims that there is only one way to God, one path, one flight. In fact, Jesus himself said it as clearly as you could ever make it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friends, this is the gospel truth. Jesus is the one way, the one flight to the Father. He is the only way. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, and Christ alone, shall all be made alive. So let me ask, are you in Adam or in Christ? Are you on the one and only flight that can take you to heaven's gates? I pray that you are. There is only one way. It is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he died for your sins upon the cross, that he paid for your debt of sin in full, taking it on himself, and thereby imputing his perfect righteousness upon you, a gift of grace. And all you can do is receive it with a grateful heart and praise the Lord for it and follow him in humbleness and humility of heart. This is the way, and I pray that you've received it. But let me ask you, if you have, if you're sure you're on that right flight, what about your family? What about your, what about your kids, your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters, your grandchildren? What about your parents, aunts and uncles, cousins? What flight are they on? Who are they in, Adam or Christ? So let me just simply ask you, do you desire to see them come to Christ in repentance and faith? When that flight lands at heaven's gates, do you want to see them there? one day disembarking along with you because they are found in Christ. Are you praying for them? Because right now I can, I can only know for certain that many of you are thinking of those who are not yet in Christ and they are in Adam. They are on the wrong flight. And so let me ask you, what is your mission? What has God assigned you to to be a witness in their lives? Are you praying for them? Are you seeking to connect with them? Are you looking for opportunities to point them towards Christ, the one and only who can take them from death to life? This holds true for everyone in our lives, be they friends, co-workers, neighbors, complete strangers. Everyone needs a Savior, and Jesus is the one and only who can save. And so our mission to show Christ's love and to grow God's family remains as important today as ever. And I know we're going through a storm in this world right now, but in spite of this present storm swirling all around us, let's not allow it to distract us and to cause us to lose sight of what is truly most important, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that it must be personally laid hold of by each man, woman, and child only through faith and receive it as a gift of grace. For as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes.
My friends, I believe. I pray that you believe. And may we endeavor to live in such a way that we could help point others to Jesus so that they too could, be, could believe, so that they too could be in Christ. Break free from that prison cell once and for all. Get on the right flight and know that when death comes, unless Jesus returns first, they will be landing safely on heaven's shores in God's presence forever. This is the main thing. Let's stay focused on that, for this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what you have done for us is beyond imagining, beyond even comprehension, what you went through to free us from that old federal head, Adam, and make you our new federal head, that you have imputed your righteousness upon us, that now we are fully justified You are sanctifying us, and one day soon you will glorify us in your presence and in the glory of God for all of eternity. And so, Lord, as we go through this life and as there are many storms and distractions all around us, help us to stay focused on what is truly most important, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that having laid hold of it by faith for ourselves, to then embrace that mission to help others lay hold of it for themselves. And so, Lord... For all the people out there listening, we pray for each one of their family members who have not yet placed faith in you, who are not yet on that flight. I pray, O Lord, that you would work in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives in such a way that you would draw them to yourself. I pray for those listening, that they would truly desire to to be a part of that process, that they would find ways to connect and have meaningful conversations and live their lives in such a way that they could point others to the saving relationship that can come only through you, our Savior. And so, Father, we pray that in these days, would you cause those who are living in fear of death, oh, Father, to realize that in you there is life eternal and to turn to you in repentance and faith. This is your will, this is your design, and we recommit ourselves to this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you richly in the week to come. Go with God's presence and in his strength. Keep your hope firmly fixed in the Lord and know that he will not disappoint you. He is with you every step of the way. And Lord willing, we will see you again right here next week.